All right, Genesis chapter 19. We're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's your question for the day. Why would God destroy an entire city? It's important to know who we're talking about here. We've left off. Um, Abraham has just uh, met with the three men, two of which are angels, one of which is probably a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, we've already talked about this, but just to, just to bring everybody up to speed, these three men come to visit Abraham. Abraham negotiates with one of them for the, for the, for the lot, for the, uh, uh, for the outcome of Sodom and Gomorrah. It starts out with 50, you remember the story, and starts thinking to himself, maybe we can't get 50, let's look for 40 righteous, don't destroy a whole city for 40 righteous people, what if there's 40 in there? And he starts whittling down until he gets down to 10, God, of course, knows he's not going to even get 10 out of it, but Abraham has to realize this city is completely depraved, completely wicked. And so God's determination is to destroy the city. Two angels go down to the city. These are referred to as the visitors in the city. One does not go down to the city. One stays with Abraham. It says that Abraham walks away, but this one person doesn't ever enter into the city. A lot of indications uh, that this might be the Lord, the way that Abraham talks to him, the way that the other angels refer to him. Uh, but I think this is a pre-incarnate Christ. What that means is it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a form of Jesus Christ before he actually was born to Mary and Joseph. Uh, that being the case, if that was the case, this capital L-O-R-D, if this was Jesus, um, it's no wonder he wouldn't set foot in the city. The city is completely corrupt. Um, so Jesus and, and Abraham have a pretty intense conversation about God's impending judgment. The two angels go down to try and rescue Lot out of the city. And so the question today is, why would God destroy an entire city? And to, to answer that truthfully, we have to discuss what the condition of the city really is. Uh, this is why we gave the children a day off. Um, and so, once again, if you want your kids to go in the gym and join them, you're welcome to do that. But now would be a good time because, and you don't have to leave just because of that, but um, it, we are going to be talking about some uh, pretty interesting uh, conversations. Let me ask you this question. I don't even like talking about this, by the way. It just, the, I studied this so much to try and get out of the muck and the mire of Sodom. And no matter how I slice it, you can't get out of it. This city is in bad. Let me ask this question. What would be the just punishment for a man who would take his seven-year-old son with him to gang rape a stranger? And what if that stranger was just a visitor visiting your town? So this, this man, this grown parent, takes his seven-year-old to gang rape, be a part of a gang rape crew to a stranger that is new in the town. And what if the parent, what if the dad took the child along just to teach him how to do it, so he'd do it right? And what if he said afterwards, we're going to kill the stranger so we don't get in trouble? And what if he said, and not only that, but son, we're going to go do this. I'm going to teach you how to do it. And I'm going to invite a bunch of my friends and we're going to go do this together. What would, what would you say should be done to that man? What, would you, what do you think would be a just punishment for a father like that? 
And what if you knew this father didn't do it once, but this father had a habit of doing this with all of his sons? He had a reputation for doing that. What punishment do you think would be just for a man like that? Probably, you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, probably nasty things. Whatever you come up with, it's going to be nasty, right? We're going to do something nasty to this man because he has no morals. He's completely corrupt. Let me just tell you, this was the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. This wasn't just a one-off. This is what was normally done in this town. As we read through the story, I didn't even want to write notes because we could just read it through in the, in the text as it is written, and you're going to sit there as anyone should and think to yourself, how could a city get this bad? How could the people of a city get this bad? That's what you're meant to think. And so the question doesn't necessarily, the the right question is not, why would God destroy a city? The right question is, what was the normal, normal condition, the normative condition of the culture of Sodom? What was normal here? And I want you to know what was normal in Sodom? This kind of behavior. Hard to wrap your mind around, I know, because we have a sense of right and wrong. Even a fallen, depraved person has a sense of right and wrong that would condemn this kind of behavior. But in Sodom and Gomorrah, no one, except for Lot, knew right from wrong. Now, does that shock you? Are you sitting there going, there's no way that could even happen, right? It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around this. Me too. Which is why I had to read through this story way too many times so that I could deliver it to you today in fairness and as the text speaks. So here we go. Let's just read through the text. By the way, if anyone ever comes up to you and says, why would God destroy an entire city? They're looking at this story wrong. Uh, The question should probably be, why didn't God destroy it a lot sooner? All right, here we go. Number one, uh, verse, verse one. Genesis 19, uh, verse one. The two angels come to Sodom in the evening... And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now Lot is sitting in the gate of the city. This means that he's somewhat important in the city. As you probably, probably most of you know, if you had business dealings, those dealings were done at the gates of the city. That's where merchants brought their wares. That's where, uh, that's where uh, justice was handed out. Politicians hung out there. Uh, business owners hung out there. Uh, when Boaz bought Ruth, you remember that? He did it at the gate of the city. It's where all of these transactions took place. And the people who hung out there were important people. Lot was at the gate of the city. So he was a, somewhat a man of honor in the city or honored in some way uh, in his capacity. Whatever evil was going on in Sodom at the time, Lot was a friend of the city. That's what we are to understand. All right? Verse 2. And Lot said, My lords, please turn aside your servants, uh, to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you, might ri- then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. Remember, these two angels are coming down to deliver judgment on Sodom. We don't know what's going to happen because we haven't been told that yet. So erase in your minds that you think the city's going to be destroyed. All you know is that 
Abraham tried to negotiate, lost the negotiation, these angels are going down to do some sort of reconnaissance. Lot invites these two strangers to come and stay with him because in the ancient Near East, hospitality was highly respected. And him being an honorable man in the city sees these two strangers and he says, come and stay with me. They refuse to stay with him in his house. Why? I think because they didn't want to get their feet in the muck of, of Sodom. And so they, instead they go to the town square, where I think they had a quick getaway if they needed one. Also, I think Lot invited them to his house because he knew what would happen if somebody else invited them to their house. Verse 3, but Lot pressed them strongly. Why did he press them strongly? I think because he didn't want them to end up in a bad position with somebody else. He knew the people of Sodom. And he knew if they see these strangers, what they would do to them. This, by the way, pressed them strongly in the Hebrew literally means he twisted their arms. He probably grabbed them by the arm arm and would not let them give, give no as an answer. So Lot has seen what these people did to strangers. He didn't want that to happen to these people. So they turned aside to him, verse 3. They entered into his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, church, how many men were there? Both what? Both young and old. How many people? All the people. Down to the what, church? Last man. Do you get the point that the Bible's trying to make here? How many men surrounded the house? All the men of the city, young and old, all of them, seven-year-olds. It's like a horror movie. Young and old, down to the last man. So church, Lot might just well be the only righteous person in Sodom. Because the rest of them are surrounding his house. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Does he know what they're going to do? <laughs> yeah. How does he know what they're going to do? Because he lives in the city. He knows what the city is. And he chooses not to recognize it. So he bravely, bravely places himself between his guests and those who are trying to get into his house to take away his guests so that they can have their way with him. Lot definitely has a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And nobody else seems to have a sense of right and wrong here. Lot seems to be the only guy who knows the difference between right and wrong anymore. So the only righteous man in this culture comes up with a solution. Verse 8. And here's the solution. Keep in mind, Lot is the only righteous man. Here's Lot's righteous man's solution. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. You ready for a shower yet? Lot is the only righteous man, but he's not very, wouldn't you say? The sin they want to commit here is clearly sexual. They want to have some sort of a sexual relationship with these men. How do I know that? Because he says you can do that with my daughters. Rape my daughters instead. Now, it's hard for us in America to identify with this kind of a culture that has grown so corrupt. This, this behavior is not normal in the ancient Near East. This is, not, this is a unique town. Uh, this kind of behavior is not... I mean, even in cultic practices, 
This was not done. This town, Sodom and Gomorrah, these towns were, were corrupt beyond anything that we can imagine. Lot was dwelling in a city where this kind of behavior was no longer strange, but something all the men approved of and all the men participated in. So not only did they approve of it, but they all participated in it. Now, before we hang Lot out to dry, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a minute. I, you hear me saying that he's a righteous man, and you're probably thinking to yourself, why would he do that if he's a righteous man? Well, I didn't come up with this on my own. This actually is a scripture verse in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, verse 8. God says to us through uh, inspiration of the New Testament, for as that righteous man, meaning Lot, lived among them, that's the people of Sodom, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The culture of the city was tormenting the righteous soul of Lot, eating away at it, slowly, slowly. The actions of the city he could ignore, but at this point, he could no longer ignore them. Now, the culture of the city was banging down his front door. No longer could he stick his head in the sand and pretend it's not as bad as I think it is. Because right now, the lives of his guests are in danger, and he has to figure out something to pacify these men on the outside of the house. So the solution he comes up with is, take my daughters. His whole family was now brought into danger because of the corruption of the city he loved. The story isn't about how Lot and his family loved the people around them. It's about how they loved the culture around them. The question I ask at this point is probably the question you're asking at this point. Why didn't Lot leave this place? Why did he stay in this place? Why did he let the culture of the city put its tentacles into his family as much as it, as much as it did? No matter how you try to avoid it, if you're a friend of the culture, the, the culture will seek to constantly pull your heart away from God. And it never stops. It never relents. You ever had a bad week? And you just pray to God, oh God, just give me one good day. Just a little breather. Just a break. Because everything bad is happening, right? Culture does not take a, take a break. It constantly pulls away. It is not a friend of righteousness. It is not a friend of God. Now, the key is you can love the people of the city. You cannot be a friend to the culture, the common culture of the city, because this is, is about a culture that is against God. The author of Genesis wants you to know this. Lot's wife, his daughters, and his entire family had become Sodom. They were one and the same. They were corrupt to the core. They were guilty. Listen, you're about to see here in just a minute the daughters were both engaged. <laughs> they were both engaged to men. How many men were around the house? Where were their fiancés? Banging down the door. Lot's family had become so corrupted by the culture of Sodom that they too thought this was normal. Their thinking and reason about life and morality had become corrupted completely by the environment Lot allowed them to grow up in. And the whole time he did, as a dad, I think he knew deep down this place was not the right place for his family. And that's why I think in Second Peter it said, it ate away at his soul. But he didn't change. He stayed there. And he let his kids grow up there. And the culture of Sodom 
bore its way into their hearts. Verse 9. Now it gets violent. But they, the guests, said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the, the door down. Sorry. This, this is the crowd speaking now. The crowd is now yelling at Lot, Get out of the way. We're coming in to get those men that are in your house so that we can have our way with them. To the point where they would break the door down. Lot tries to reason with them, but in pointing out their sin, made them only more angry and determined to get in the house. Verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. These are the angels now. Brought the men, uh, Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. All these men were now struck with blindness. Did they go home? Did they panic? Did they go to a doctor? What did they do? They kept groping for the door. Does that not strike you as odd? If you were suddenly struck with blindness, would you give up what you're doing and seek medical attention or something? These guys didn't. Even after they were all struck with blindness, they couldn't stop groping for the door. Their lust was so insatiable that they exhausted themselves just trying to satisfy themselves. How desperate is the sin of the city? Well, you want to know what God thinks of this place? You're about to find out. Verse 12, Then the men, the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against it its people, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. You know why Sodom got destroyed? So the sin of Sodom would stop in its tracks. This sin, like, like this, this sin of Sodom was like tentacles spreading across to now where Sodom and Gomorrah and this little town we're about to find out was even infected by it. That's what sin does. It doesn't stop until, it doesn't stop with you. You might be struggling with a sin and thinking to yourself, well, I'll get this under control. No, 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 no. It doesn't stop with you. Sin is not satisfied with one person. It will make your life miserable so that it can now bleed into the people that live with you. And after it bleeds into their lives, it bleeds into your friends and it bleeds into more family members. It works like tentacles to destroy. It's not just happy destroying you. It wants to destroy you and everything around you. We... We have a way too benign view of sin to the point where we think we can temper it, we can, tem- we can tame it, and we can use it for our own advantage when in reality it's eating away at our soul. And we don't realize it until it's too late. And yet in Scripture, God constantly warns us about the outcome of sin. Beware, because what you reap, you will... Yeah. Your sins will soon find you out. All of these scriptures. By the way, Satan is not a pussycat looking to be friends with you. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Nowhere in scripture is sin ever presented as something that's tameable or benign. Everywhere it's presented as, watch out, you have no idea what it will take from you. 
Sodom is an incredible example of that. So God decides to destroy the city so he can stop this sin in its tracks. Verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were about to marry his daughters, up, get out of the place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Again, I ask you, church, where were Lot's son-in-laws? Sons-in-law. Right outside, trying to break down the door. Lot goes out, and he tries to tell them, guys, listen, you have to get out of this town. God is going to destroy it tonight. Please come with me. Groping for the door to get the men in the house, and Lot was going to give his daughters to them so that they could marry them. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be what, church? Just joking. Can you imagine? They're blind. They're groping around. Lot is preaching to them, get out. Destruction is coming. And they still think he's just jesting. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot and said, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. What did Lot do? What did Lot do? It's right there. Can somebody explain this to me? Anybody? Why is Lot lingering? Why, why, is he just, why is he just biding time? Why was he sitting down in the first place? Why do the angels constantly have to give him the same speech? Up, let's go, up, let's go, come on, let's go, up, let's go. And yet he keeps lingering. He's fighting to stay in this place. Why? Because the city had its hands on his heart. Think of what he would lose if he left. If God was going to destroy the city, what would Lot lose? Everything. Everything he owns, everything he would lose. And he lingered and pretended it wasn't as bad as it seemed to be. So the men, keep reading, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, be careful to understand that, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And now destruction is going to happen. What do you think Lot is thinking at this time? He's probably sitting there staring at all his wealth, his possessions, his life, his idols, his powerful position where he gets to sit at the gate and make decisions on behalf of the city. And he's thinking to himself, I'm going to lose it all. The reader is meant to see a window into the heart of Lot so that we can understand how culture has stuck its tentacles into this righteous man and he doesn't even see it. The angels grab him and drag him out. They manhandle Lot and his family, and the Bible calls that mercy. (laughs) You ever been manhandled by God? (laughs) Maybe not physically, but you ever been made miserable by God because he's trying to rip something away from you? It's like a little kid, you know, playing with a toy, and and you're going, you know, a little piece of glass, and you're playing with it. It's shiny. It's a pretty piece of glass. Oh, my kid's playing with glass. So you take it away from them and go, ah! You rip it away from no, I want to keep the closet. Stick your hand in there, pull it away. You ever do that? No, not quite like that, right? But what lengths would you go to to tear something dangerous away from the one you love? And God does that for us more times than we give Him credit for. In this case, Lot, the Bible clearly says, is being shown mercy by being dragged out of the city by two individuals. Verse 17, as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And at this point, you think Lot would say, yes, sir, I'm on my way. But you know what Lot does? He argues with the angels. 
He says, oh no, my lords. No, 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 no. Let's talk this through. I'm a good negotiator. Let's just talk it through. Maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. And the angels are probably thinking to themselves, were you, were you just at back of the house? Did you not see what we just saw? So he negotiates. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not just a little city? And my life will be saved. What is he talking about? There's a city right next door called Zor. Zor literally means little city. Little. So he said, I just want to go over there. Why does he want to go over there? It's called little because it's a little version of Sodom. And Lot says, I can identify with the people at Zor. Don't send me into the mountains. I don't know how to live that life. Send me over to the little city. That I'm used to. I can handle that. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. This is probably raining liquid sulfur. I just can't imagine the pain and the death that this destruction that this causes. By the way, we're meant, as a reader, we're meant to see a major contrast here. Why did Lot choose this place to live? Do you remember? I remind you with this verse, Genesis 13 and verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes, remember? When Abraham said, you pick your section and I'll pick my section. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of what? <laughs> there you have it. In the direction of Zorah. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We are meant to see the condition of the land before this and the condition of the land after this because after God's done with it, nothing grows. It's devastated. By the way, I also need to stop and say this. Not only are we meant to see the contrast between Lot choosing this place because it looked so great and now it's under such devastation. Why? Because the corruption was in here. But we're also meant to see the heart of God through all of this. I want you to see God's heart when he has to do things like this. Ezekiel 33.11 gives us a good insight into God's heart. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I think we just can't appreciate the tentacles a depraved culture bores into our soul when you learn to love it, when you really learn to love it. Do you want to know how nefarious the tentacles are from the culture that creep in when we're not paying attention? Verse 26. You know this verse. But Lot's wife, what's the rule now? Run and don't don't look back. But Lot's wife behind him, what did she do, church? She looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Why did she look back? Yeah, she's leaving her heart behind. Her husband, her daughters are being saved from the destruction raining down from God. And she looks back. What did she love the most? Sodom. Isn't that hard to wrap your mind around? 
Isn't that hard to wrap your mind around because of the fact that her husband just offered her two daughters to a mob of rapists? Isn't that hard to wrap your mind around? That is a nefarious state of sin when it gets into us and we don't count it for what it is. She loved her culture more than she loved her husband and her own children and her own God. God saved her and she forfeited her salvation. God came to rescue her, dragged her out of the town, and she forfeited her salvation. That is why, church, this is one verse that you should teach your kids, and we should learn ourselves and memorize it. 1 John 2.15 Do not... In fact, let's say it together. It's such a good verse. Would you say it with me? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Can you read that verse in a brand new way if you put it under the lens of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. This is not about loving people in the world. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with loving the culture of this world more than we love God. And that happens slowly, surely to everybody. That's why we need a constant check in our own hearts of where our idols lie. Because if anything is more important than God, your culture is winning the battle. Want to see the aftermath? Want want, want to know what happened afterwards? Abraham went to see what remained. Suddenly we're brought back to Abraham's point of view. Verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. That's why I think that third person was a pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 28. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Total destruction. Nothing remains. Abraham had to acknowledge that God knew the true depravity of the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had to try to intervene in, in all, in all the, the, the good ways that he could, but realized that that culture was totally devoid of God. And here's the key. Abraham never sees Lot again. Because Abraham doesn't know if he survived. Lot, he thinks, went up with everything else. The angels did not tell him. Nobody came to him. He didn't have email. He didn't have Facebook. He couldn't connect with him. He had no idea. He thought his uh, nephew was gone with Sodom and Gomorrah. He was never told that he'd be rescued. I can only imagine the, the pain that man must have felt. Verse 29, so it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrew when he overthrew the land in which Lot lived. God's mercy again is highlighted. God saved Lot for Abraham's sake. Verse 30, now Lot went up from Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in Zoar. I don't know what happened in Zoar, but he was afraid to live there. My guess is he probably thought whatever happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is now happening to all the cities around. 
So he probably thought to himself, I'll be, I'll, after thinking about it, I think I'm going to be safer in the hills. So he goes there. He thinks the world is now ending. His daughters think the world is ending. They have no idea what exists way far away. They only see what's in front of them. And now fire's coming down from heaven. The world is ending. And these kids, these daughters, want more than anything else to have children. Because without children, they're going to die. Nobody to take care of them. And so they decide the only way they're going to have children, because all the men are now gone, except for their dad, guess what they decide to do? What anybody in Sodom would think to do. They decide the only way they're going to have children is if they have a relation, sexual relationship with their dad, and both of them get him drunk, and both of them do, and both of them have kids with their dad. Sodom lives in the cave. They escape the city, but the culture is in the heart of those girls. Everything Lot had gained is now taken away. Everything, including his own family. He has lost everything. Verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot came, became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And I visited this verse several weeks ago and gave you a history lesson of what the Ammonites and the Moabites were to the Israelites for the rest of time. They were constantly in battle. They were constantly picking them off one by one. They were constantly trying to ruin the Israelites. They were never friends. They were always against the Israelites. Sodom may have been destroyed, but Sodom lives on in this cave. By the way, do you know what Moab means? Moab literally means son of my father. And do you know what Ben-Ami means? Son of my close relative. Sick, twisted, that's the culture. By the way, Sodom from here on forward in Scripture is always referred to in a negative context. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is likened to the judgment that will come in the end times. We're going to talk about that just in a second. The sin of Sodom is alluded to constantly in Scripture. We have the word sodomy because it came out of this story. That is why anyone who comes up to you and says, oh, God's okay with the sin of homosexuality, just has not read enough Scripture quite yet. Listen, the culture of this world naturally pulls against a righteous heart that belongs to God. It just does. That is why the verse uh, says, don't be a friend of the, uh, uh, don't, be, don't love the world, nor the, the things that are in the world. The culture's pull on our heart is subtle. It happens slowly. It happens subtly. It happens over time. It happens when we're asleep. It happens when we're not paying attention. And it lives not to just get you, but it lives to get your kids and your family and everybody can take with it. It's a battle that we're in. And too many times, soldiers who fall asleep get eaten by the enemy because they forget they're in a battle. We enjoy a culture, by the way, that is based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. If anyone, by the way, tells you opposite than that, then they're, they're just revising history. Most of the laws we have are based on Scripture, the laws that you see in the Bible. This is how our, our society is structured. And this is why society functions 
half decently because we follow biblical principles. The people who live here may not be Christians, not, not all of them, but the people who live here have to abide by the laws that came originally from God. Culture will eat away at those laws slowly, 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 until the culture no longer looks righteous, but now it, it's been pulled so far away. And it happens when you're sleeping. It happens when you least expect it. The culture will always attack any laws that are righteous. And culture will always create blind spots in us to the point where we begin to think that some things culture does are normal. And we don't look at Scripture and we don't compare them to God's law. The Aztecs threw babies off the pyramids so that it would rain on their crops. And they thought that was normal. Everybody did it. And we look back at that and we say, oh my word, how could they be so stupid to think that if they throw a baby off a pyramid, it's going to rain on their crops. We kill aborted babies like, like, like we're driving through a McDonald's drive through We elect people who believe that's normal. We live in a culture who believes it's normal. I was amazed, and forgive me for getting political, but the politics of this world has hijacked the righteousness of God. This past week, I saw some, some commercials for, pe- for people in the Chicagoland area that were trying to get elected, and the first thing they put on that was, this person voted against Planned Parenthood 100% of the time. Do you really want this person to be your politician? I'm going, yep, that's a winner for me. I don't care what else he does. If he goes against that, that institution that my taxes are paying for, I'm going to vote for that person. Because I, I still, I have a theory, 50, 70, maybe 100 years from now, people are going to look, if God does not destroy our culture first, people are going to look back on us and say, how could they have aborted millions of babies like they did? We look back on the Aztecs and we pass judgment on them thinking that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. And yet we know people get abortions because it's too inconvenient to have a baby. Can you tell me what a baby will be if it's not born? I mean, if it is born, if you let a baby go to its full, full term, what will it become? A human being, right? This is not rocket science. And if you stop, if you terminate that, what will, what will the baby be? Baby will be dead, right? There's no way that thing's going to be anything else other than an image of God born to another image of God. You can, you can pace that however you want to pace that, but in the end, you're stopping a human life from continuing. It's as simple as that and get into the details of when does it become a human life. I don't care about all of that. What I care about is we live in a culture that thinks abortion is the most, not only, not only, you remember when we used to not even talk about this? But now we don't even talk about it. We elect politicians based on the fact that they're for it. How long do we have? I don't know. I don't know. But I think our culture has convinced us that some things are not as bad as they really are. And we've fallen asleep at the wheel as Christians. And we have people in churches that think to themselves, Craig, that's a political issue. No, no, no. I beg to differ. That is a God issue. God brings life. We stop it. I didn't mean to get off on that. But I think we're in trouble. I think we we pat ourselves on the back way too often. We pass judgment on the Aztecs for throwing kids off the, the, the pyramids, and we look at Sodom and say, yeah, they deserve to be destroyed, when we are behaving in very similar matters in a hundred different ways, and we do not pass judgment on ourselves. We think it's normal. All right.
Number one, you're not above your culture. Protect yourself. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, Craig, I would never let my family get to that extreme. You sure? Are you sure? If that is your, if that is your desire to protect your family, then you have got to protect them act, with actions, not just with prayers. I mean, pray over them, give them to God, but you have got to set some standards for your family that, that pass on godly principles to them. They do not get it through osmosis. They don't want to be taken to church? Manhandle them like the angels did. That's my advice to you. They don't want to read their Bibles? Manhandle them like the angels did. That's my advice to you. You read the Bible. You pray. You make them sit down. You teach them from when they're young, and they will not leave it when they're old. With the same determinations the angel used to force Lot's family out of the city, force godliness in your home. You are in a battle, and you are not to fall asleep at the wheel. And the enemy doesn't just want you, it really wants your kids. Loving your culture in this world can easily supplant your love for God. I tell you one more time, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, desire the flesh, desire the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Number two, your children are not stronger than the culture in which they live. You may think that they are. They're not. Protect them. They need you to define godly barriers for them. Discipline them with purpose, not to make them obedient, but to make them godly. Your goal is to point your children to God at every turn. If they drop the ball, you teach them how God is disappointed with how they drop the ball, not with how you're disappointed how they drop the ball. You point them in every aspect of life back to the one who loves them more than you do. If you want them to be godly, you give them God examples constantly, and you refer them back to God's principles constantly. Culture will steal them from you if you give it a small enough foothold. All it needs is a little foothold. Take them out of any area where they are being manipulated to love culture rather than to love God. And remember, church, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities, powers, and things in heavenly places. These are all cultural influences on our families. All right? You may look at it and you say, oh no, this person's trying to ruin my child. No, 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 you need to understand there's a spiritual warfare going on, so there's something else trying to steal the heart of your kid. Okay, number three, see God's mercy in his actions. Don't let culture tell you otherwise. Culture may look at you and say, God is not just if he's bringing judgment I would beg to differ. I would say God is as merciful as he is a God of justice. In fact, sometimes he's being extremely merciful when we think he's being extremely strict. 2 Peter 2.6 If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, You can't get away by not reading the next verse, verse 7. And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The point is not that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank God he did. The point is God went to incredible lengths to save the only righteous person in Sodom. Why would God send angels to take that man out? He was already pretty corrupt. Waste them all. Start again. That's not how God works. God goes to great lengths to rescue those who love him, no matter how much we drop the ball. Now, last thing. You may look at this and you may say, well, Craig, I think that's a fairy tale because uh, it's like so unbelievable. Like, there's no record of Sodom and Gomorrah existing. I'm not quite sure that this actually happened. Uh, how many of you would say that Jesus was a good person? Probably, yeah. Even if you didn't like God, you might say Jesus is a good person. Was he a good teacher? Yeah, maybe, okay. So we'll say that he's a good teacher. Do good teachers lie? No, they don't lie. Jesus taught on Sodom and Gomorrah at least three different occasions, using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. And he taught on it as if it really occurred. So if you think that Jesus was a good person, good teacher, Jesus thought that Sodom and Gomorrah actually happened. So you know what? So do I. In fact, one verse in Luke 17, Jesus said, On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. God's judgment is promised to rain down on this earth one more time. Did you know that? And it will be worse than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah half of the earth's population would be wiped out in a day. Sodom is supposed to be seen as a foretaste of the awful impending judgment of God upon people. Revelation 22 says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the, beginning and the, last, uh, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In both cases, God's judgment will be poured out. In both cases, as with Sodom, as it is with the end times, the end of all things, there will be utter destruction. In both cases, a remnant will be saved. God's chosen mode of rescue. And in both cases, only those who follow God's plan will survive. There is a way out, but it is God's way. That's why Jesus uh, reminds us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way out of coming judgment, and it's by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. In actuality, He is the righteous one who has come to save us. Like those angels pulled Lot out, God has given Jesus Christ to pull us out. And if you want to be saved from the impending judgment that will come someday, most definitely, people of Sodom didn't believe it was going to happen, did they? It'll happen very similar. The Bible says it will happen when no one's expecting it. But it will come. There is a way out. And the way out has been provided because God is so merciful. And God has given us a way out. If we give our, our trust, if we have faith in Him, if we accept Him as our Savior, if we ask Him for forgiveness of our sins, Jesus Christ is our way. Because He is the truth and He will give us life. There's no way out except through Him. Feel like you need a shower now? What a messy story. 
It's to highlight the judgment of God on sin, but it's to highlight the mercy of God on sinners, of which we all are. So let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for this morning. Hard message to do uh, because it's hard to walk through this muck. And yet we know that you have given us this story so that we may understand your heart even more. How long you put up with Sodom. It's amazing that they got to that point and you didn't do anything about it. You left them so that more would be saved. And then when, when sin became so corrupt that there was only one righteous person in the entire city, you brought your judgment. I pray, Lord, that we would rescue as many as we can by sharing the gospel with them, like we did this morning. That we'd highlight your mercy and your grace as much as your judgment. That we would not be a church that ignores what is to come, but that we would, we would handle this like we are rescuing souls rescuing people from a coming judgment that is too, too horrific to think of, and yet most certainly will come, because you've promised it. So Father, I pray that you would help us to rescue as many as we can. Thank you for using us in this amazing capacity that we are your ambassadors, even though we are sinners from the crown of our head to the sole of our foot. Thank you that you use us in these righteous ways. And I pray that you would use our church even more in this community to save people from the coming judgment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.